You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Well, good morning. If I don't know you, my name is James. If I do know you, my name is James. First of all, I just want to say thank you for everyone who came out yesterday for the work day. You guys bless this church facility. Thank you so much. If you can see out, the windows have been clean. The mulch has been laid. A tree has been cut down. It was probably hard figuring out where you were at, right? It was, the tree out there is cut down. Uh, we probably should have saved that for when Jesus cuts down the... What, what tree is that? The uh, fig tree, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyways, thank you so much for giving of your Saturday uh, to help just further facility needs here at the Vine. Really appreciate you all for doing that. And, and secondly, too, I, I cannot stand things in my pocket. Um, secondly, uh, as Jackie prayed, just remember uh, the team, Naomi, um, Steffi, and Zach, who are going down to Ecuador this week to be part of the, the teaching of just uh, furthering um, just gospel-centered um, uh, curriculum to, for Ecuadorian pastors to raise up leaders who understand the gospel and can teach it faithfully in Ecuador. So it's exciting as a church to be part of that, right? So let's commit to just be praying for them this week um, in the midst of, you know, ongoing, um, you know, obviously issues with, with COVID or whatever, that, that God's plan will continue to, to go forward. It will not be prevented. So let's be praying for that this week. But we're going to continue in Matthew, and to, and to get started, I just wanted to ask you this question, um, and perhaps you're like me, and sometimes you perhaps lay in bed at night just pondering the perplexing questions of life. I don't know, sometimes maybe these things just prevent you from falling asleep, such as, like, you know, the, the song, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, like, why do we sing that when they're already at the ball game, Right? Or, you know, classic, right, like, why do we drive on parkways or park on driveways? Or why, when we ship something through, you know, a car, it's a shipment, right? But if we send something through a ship, it's actually cargo. Or why do our noses run and our feet smell? And, and who decided, who came up with the idea that fat chance and slim chance are going to mean the same thing, Right? And what about this? You ever think about Teflon? You know, the thing that doesn't, that like, on a frying pan, like, nothing can stick to it, right? Well, how did they get Teflon to stick onto the frying pan? It's perplexing. And this is what I think is really perplexing, is, is why is that little indestructible black box that's used on airplanes, why don't they just make the whole darn plane out of that stuff, right? These are perplexing questions that can keep me up at night. As we move forward in Matthew, Jesus is asked similar perplexing questions. These are not perplexing questions that give us a chuckle, though. These perplexing questions, as we just heard Jackie read, are designed really to trap Jesus, to discredit, to to undercut his influence among the Jewish people. 
And last week we saw, as Zach um, talked to us, it was um, a bipartisan attempt. It was the Pharisees and the Herodians attempting to drag Jesus into this, uh, this political controversy regarding taxation, right? And this week we'll see a, it's another attempt. It's, it's a different Jewish party. It's the Sadducees. And, and here their aim is just to expose Jesus, his theology, his teaching as nothing more than just pure foolishness. That, that Jesus, in a sense, teaches a theology that's like so, so, so absurd that it'd be foolish to follow Jesus. It'd be foolishness to continue to follow him. You see, it's an attempt, again, to, to undercut his influence, to stop his growing popularity among the Jews. And we shall see Jesus masterfully displays the eternal depths of his infinite wisdom, proving once more that Jesus is not just an ordinary rabbi. He's not just a normal or common teacher, but he's much more. And this is our big idea this morning, that those who set out to prove Jesus a fool prove themselves to be the fool in the end. That those who set out to prove Jesus a fool prove themselves to be the fool in the end. Let's pray. Jesus, we need your help. Holy Spirit, would you come and open our eyes to this text and our hearts to this text. Lord, prune back any unbelief or sin that we may clearly see you. We want to walk out of this mere facility changed more into the likeness of you. Help us, we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, the religious party that's attacking Jesus is the Sadducees. And that's great because I literally knew nothing about the Sadducees before this week, all right? Like, who are they? What do they believe? Why do they want to undercut the influence of Jesus? So hang with me. This is important. But I want to just answer these questions for us to gain better clarity. So who are the Sadducees? Well, in Jesus' time, in first century Judaism, there were, there were three main ba- uh, brands of, of Judaism. You had the, um, forgive me if I say this wrong, but you had the Essens, I, that's not right, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but you had three main brands of Judaism. And, and the Sadducees would have been the fewest in number, as far as those who followed this way of thought, but greatest this is what's important, greatest in influence, power, and wealth. And how so? Because they cozied right up to Rome. They cozied up to Rome. Because it was Rome at this time, under Roman rule, who would appoint positions of influence and power over Jewish life. For instance, Rome appointed the high priest, the priest over all priests, but Rome would appoint this position. And they appointed at this time from the party of the Sadducees. The Sanhedrin, which is just like the highest ruling order of Judaism, those who sat on the Sanhedrin were mostly from the party of the Sadducees. And, and, and here's interesting too, like the temple and the, specifically the temple concessions, which we saw like the money changing, the giving and, and selling of all the temple activity was controlled by the Sadducees. So they're incredibly influential. They're greatly powerful, and they are super wealthy. It's fair to say that they are the aristocrats of Jewish life of Jesus' day. 
that's who they are. But bear in mind, it's Rome who has elevated them to this authority and influence. It's Rome who's, who's paved their way to great prosperity. Theologically, what did they believe? Come on in, Martinsons. Theologically, uniquely, the Sadducees believed in only the Torah, meaning the first five books of the Bible, of our Bible, the writings of Moses. This was their scripture. This is what was authoritative. And so by only accepting the authority of the Torah, of what Moses wrote, the Sadducees denied a few things, one of which in our text is they denied the resurrection, meaning there's no afterlife, meaning there's neither future punishment nor eternal reward. That the only sphere in which human life existed for them was in the here and the now. That's interesting, right? Because as we read our Bibles, right, it's abundantly clear that there is a resurrection. But we have to remember that the Sadducees and all Jewish folks at this time, they're crafting their theology, right, from the Old Testament. So let me put you to the test. I already failed this week. But if I was to ask you, could you think of a verse or verses in the Old Testament that spoke to the resurrection? Could you come up with some references, some scripture? I already said I failed this week. It's, it's kind of hard. It's not easy. But there are a few references that point to this idea of life after death, and I think they'll be here on the screen. From the Psalms, there's a few different places, but David says here in Psalm 16, says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which is the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. For you make known to me the path or part of life. There's a hint of something after death. Isaiah says something similar. He says in Isaiah 26, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy. And maybe some of you would have gotten Daniel, but Daniel in Daniel 12 says this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So certainly here in the Old Testament, like these are the three biggest like references we could pull out there's there's a hint right of life after death but there's not enough as we now know in the new testament right to kind of put these pieces together of this resurrection idea but this was the majority view in judaism in jesus's time that there was to be life after death and so uniquely the sadducees deny this idea of resurrection why well we quoted a a psalm from david right we had Isaiah and we had uh, a Daniel. But the resurrection is not mentioned by Moses, right? The resurrection is not in the Torah. The resurrection is not within the scripture that they think as authoritative, or so they think, right? So lastly, why do the Sadducees, why do they want to undercut Jesus? Like, what's their issue with Jesus? Because it's interesting, Sadducees, they don't really show up in the Gospels until the very end. They're not really in the early days of Jesus' ministry on earth. Why? Well, if there's no resurrection, why do you need messianic hope? For all they knew, right, they were living already in the glory, in the here and the now, because they are prospering. They are doing very well in life. 
And so in a lot of ways, I think they're just utterly indifferent to the messianic claims of Christ, the early claims of Christ. But now, in the final days, as we near the end of Matthew, right, they become a little more involved. And I think there's two reasons. One, as we just read, Jesus invades their turf. turf. He enters their temple. He smashes their money-changing tables. Remember, they control those tables. So now Jesus is a threat to their prosperity. And secondly, and probably most importantly, because they cooperated with Rome... It meant they were suspicious, overly suspicious of any movement that might disrupt their current political setup, right? So as Jesus, as we saw, enters Jerusalem with these like swelling crowds of people around him, hailing him as their king, they fear, the Sadducees fear that Jesus is simply going to stir these crowds to revolt against Rome, which would end their influence and authority, as Rome, no doubt, would squash it. And we see this as we read in John's gospel account. It will be on the screen in John 11. It says, so the chief priests, and again, this would be Sadducees, and the Pharisees gathered the council, which is the Sanhedrin, and said, what are we to do? For this man, Jesus, performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So do you feel that the threat, the heat that the Sadducees are under? They fear Jesus will incite these mobs to begin a revolution against Rome. But the Sadducees kind of like Rome. Rome has given them everything they have. So fearing their necks are on the line, the Sadducees join their rival. They don't like the Pharisees, but they join them in this pursuit to undercut the influence of Jesus, to discredit Jesus. So let's take all of that and let's see how they do. How do they do in undercutting Jesus? If you're not there yet, we're in Matthew 22. Starting there in verse 23. The same day, meaning the Pharisees have already been here. The same day the Sadducees come to him, Jesus, and it qualifies them, who say there's no resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, and that's interesting, right? They go back to who? Moses. That's their authority. Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So this is a valid point. They're, they're drawing from a, a, an Old Testament law that's, that's there. They're not making this up. In Deuteronomy chapter 25 It actually says this, and I'll read it to you. It's on the screen. If brothers dwell together, this is the law that Moses wrote, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in to her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. All right, so now to our eyes... This command seems like absurd, right? A little bit crazy to be marrying my brother's wife, right? But in all reality, this command was a provision to protect the legacy of a family, to continue the family line. And also, it was a command that provided and protected for the vulnerable widows in this society. 
And so this is entirely viewed as a righteous practice. In fact, if you were to continue reading in Deuteronomy, there's actually consequences for anyone failing to fulfill this command. As we read our Bibles, there's references to this actually happening. Negatively, in Genesis 28, there's the case of the two brothers who are punished for the refusal to fulfill this obligation uh, to Tamar. Maybe some of you know that story, right? But positively, we see Boaz, right? He fulfills this duty to Ruth, marrying her, taking her as his wife, as the next in kin. So, so, so for the Sadducees, who, who do not believe that, uh, that there's life after death, that the only life after death then, therefore, could just be that and having offspring, right? That the upholding of this type of marriage is incredibly important, for this is how they will continue their legacy, right? This is the only way they have a category of continuing life after death is through their family line. So this is important to them. And so... I would suppose that they've followed this teaching of Moses. And so they present this perplexing question that they believe will expose the foolishness of Jesus. Verse 25. The Sadducees say, Now, Jesus, there were seven brothers among us. I don't know if this is a true or made-up story. But the first of these brothers married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. Very bizarre. After them all, the woman, this wife, died. So here's their question. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, of these seven brothers, excuse me, of these seven brothers, whose wife will she be? For they had, they all had her. I mean, it's it's an utterly absurd scenario, right? The reality of this happening, maybe it happened, I don't know, but I can just see the smirks on the faces of these Sadducees, like, gotcha, Jesus. It's like the junior high kid. I don't know if you've ever taught, like, junior high Sunday school, but it's like the junior high kid, like, raising their hands, smirk on their smile. I was, I was going to call out T-Bone here, but he's not. I don't see him. <laughs> But it's a junior high kid, right? They got a little bit of wisdom going on. And they raise their hand. They're like, hey, teacher, tell me this. Can God create a rock so big that even he can't lift it? Right? It's a lot less of a question, like seeking truth, and much more of a desire to prove you're right or you have some wisdom and the other is wrong. In essence, they're asking, okay, Jesus, we've, we've practiced the thing that, that Moses taught, the truth, the authority, right? We've practiced it. And now you, you, Jesus, are saying this new theology about resurrection. So if there's a resurrection, like, how is God going to sort out all these marriages that Moses commanded us to have? Like, do the brothers arm wrestle, all seven of them arm wrestle to see who wins the wife? Like, that's a great reality TV show. Or... Does God tolerate polygamy or idolatry in his eternal, righteous afterlife? So as we read there in verse 24, when they come to Jesus and say, teacher, it's it's really in a mocking voice. They're like, teacher, tell us, teacher, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? See, they're not after truth. They're not after truth. They have a desire to prove that they're right and that Jesus is a fool. 
For to rightly uphold the teaching of Moses in these types of marriages makes the very idea of resurrection illogical and foolishness. You see, they think they've come to Jesus with this knockout blow, checkmate. But they're going to find the infinite wisdom of Jesus. And they're going to learn something. The number one lesson about debating theology, don't argue with Jesus. Verse 29, Jesus answered them and says, you are wrong. Right to the chase, right? You're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So Jesus says, you're wrong on two accounts. You don't know the scripture and you don't know the power of God. And so Jesus then will expound on these two errors and he actually starts with the second that they do not know the power of God, and then gets into they do not know Scripture. So we're going to unpack. They do not know the power of God. Verse 30, Jesus expands on this and says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Guys, and I might get excited at this point, because this is amazing stuff. The Sadducees assumed resurrection was a return to the same. That resurrection meant it's back to same normal life as we know it, it right now, right? As we see it, including marriage. But that's an assumption that does not account for the power of God to create an eternal existence that's exponentially better and immensely more fulfilling than the fallen world as we know it today. You see, Jesus is saying there is a realm coming where maybe there's no longer marriage as we understand it today, but there's a realm coming that is far superior. But Jesus does say, and we want to talk about this, that this idea of marriage, at least as we know it in this form on earth, no longer exists. And if I'm totally honest, that bums me out. That bums me out. I, I, I picture myself in heaven on the streets of gold. It's a wonderful thing. But then I see Emily, my wife, like a few steps ahead of me, and I'm like continually chasing her, right? And she like turns around like, James, I'm sorry. I'm with Jesus now. You know? James, I'm sorry. I'm with Jesus. Like it's hard for me to imagine being in heaven without continuing in my relationship with Emily. No marriage? Like, come on, Jesus. We've got some other options here. You see, this, this shocks our ears because we, we largely view heaven selfishly. Meaning so often our, our view of heaven, it's blurred by the, the colors of our desires rather than inform with the reality of God's eternal glory. We, we picture beaches and paradise and pleasures without any regard really of God being around there at all, Right? I find myself in that mental space, but it's not a me-centered paradise. Heaven's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God and his glory. And marriage, by God's design, points us to that reality. What do I mean? Well, Paul, in his classic instructions to the husband and wife in marriage, Paul concludes in Ephesians chapter 5 with this summary statement. You guys know it well. But Paul says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother 
and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Heyo! The whole time Paul was talking about these earthly husbands and wives in marriage, guess what? Paul was actually talking about Jesus and us, the church. You see, my marriage, it's not, uh, it's, to, to Emily, it's not about me and my happiness. My marriage is not an end to myself. Rather, God designed marriage, my marriage, your marriage, if you're here married, to display for all the intimate and mutual giving and receiving and love and acceptance and support and trust found in that exclusive marital relationship to serve as a signpost of the eternal reality of God and his love for the church. Marriage is a signpost, not the destination. It'd be like driving to Disney World and parking the car after many hours of driving, right? And parking my car at the off-ramp where there's that little green sign with the white arrow that says, like, Disney World this way, right? You know what I'm I'm picturing, right? And you can kind of see the, the grandeur of Disney World over the highway, and you, and you gather the family. I'm like, okay, come on, kids, come here, come here. And I get my selfie stick out, right? And I get that old selfie stick out, and I, I snap that photo. All the family, we're all beautiful dressed. We're all around this sign. We take the photo. And I'm like, okay, kids, back in the car. And then we drive home. And then I tell everyone in my neighborhood, I tell all of you guys on Sunday morning, I've been to Disney World. It was awesome. That's what Jesus is saying. Marriage is not the destination. That exit sign, that was not the destination. Marriage is merely a signpost, a signpost to a far greater eternal reality of God and his love for the church. You see, Disney World is far greater. I've never been there, but I'm told Disney World is far greater than that far little green sign, right? That's why marriage ceases to exist, at least as we know it, in heaven. For no longer, and catch this, will, will the, the heavenly realm, it's not going to be marked by like the distinct family lines that are often drawn by like these marital relationships that we have on earth. Why? Because we, the church, will all be one family. Christ and the bride, the church. There's only one marriage that matters. There's only one marriage that lasts forever, and that is the marriage of Christ and the church. Therefore, My relationship with Emily will will not be as as we understand marriage. I don't know what it will look like in heaven. But I do know that as sin is removed from myself and Emily as we enter into heaven, that our relationship as sin is removed will be immeasurably more loving and more satisfying than even our best day of marriage on this earth. And not only that, But I will share this immeasurably more loving relationship with Emily as sin is removed. I will share that with her, but I will share that with all of you as well. All the saints of God for all of eternity will have this immeasurably more loving relationship, one family. As a father myself, who has the same mutual love for all three of my children, so too we will share this mutual heavenly love for all of God's family. So before we move on, two quick implications. To the married, if you're married this morning, worship Jesus. Worship Jesus. 
Worship Jesus, not your spouse. Recognize what marriage points to and fight to find your identity and value in Jesus, not your spouse. Worship Jesus. Ask yourself, where are you looking for satisfaction and fulfillment in the signpost? Where are you looking in the signpost in your marriage rather than in the destination and in God? And to those of us who are unmarried, who desire marriage, and even kids in this room, worship Jesus. Worship Jesus. Worship Jesus. Not the idea of marriage. Recognize what marriage points to and fight to realize that whether you experience the signpost or not is largely irrelevant because what is relevant is that we take God at his word that the eternal destination is far more glorious than any signpost of this life. Marriage is not the destination Jesus is. So in the same vein, ask yourself, where are you looking for satisfaction and fulfillment in the signpost rather than the destination? Continuing in verse 30, back to Matthew. Jesus moves from the natural, what we can see, what we can comprehend of this world about marriages, to the supernatural, to a concept we have literally no concept of. That we, check it out, he says that we will be like angels. Say what? (laughs) We will be like angels. We won't be angels, but like angels. Mean no longer will our, our mortal bodies be vulnerable to the sickness and diseases of this world, like adios, COVID, right? We'll be eternal, deathless, glorified beings. And that, friends, is the exponentially better and more fulfilling realm to come. And that's the power of God to make it so. That's the power of God. The power of God which created the heavens and earth from nothing is the same power that will resurrect our crusty, frail, mortal bodies into glorified, eternal beings. Amen? Yet the Sadducees could not comprehend this power of God. They couldn't comprehend that God can make a radical transformation in humankind's nature at the resurrection. They had no category for that. You see, the Sadducees limited God's power only to what they could see with their eyes, what they could rationalize with their brains. You see, our whole text, the issue is not marriage. That's not the issue. The whole, it has everything to do with, with who you believe God is. That's the issue. Is your belief about God predicated on your own rationalization or God's revelation within Scripture. Your rationalization, how you think and see, or God's revelation, how he's revealed himself in Scripture. And let's remember the context of the Sadducees, right? They're on top of their world. They're in positions of highest authority and influence within their culture. They are rich and wealthy. They are doing well. 
And, and they possess this worldview that denies an afterlife. So what matters most is how one lives like right now, the here and the now, not focusing on unseen like future realm to come. And in the here and now, they're doing quite well. They're prospering. So you have to wonder how much of that reality shapes their understanding of who God is. What, what part of God's power, in a sense, did they actually need in their life? They, they, on themselves, they've kind of figured out how to make a good life, right? And so often, you and I, we fashion God to be who we need Him to be rather than allowing Him to inform us of who He is. You see, what we believe about God greatly determines how we choose to live. If I believe God is most important, then what he asks of me will be met with first-time obedience. If I don't believe or doubt God's forgiveness, then I'm going to struggle with the acceptance and love that he freely offers. What you believe about God, his love, his goodness, his, his holiness, will determine how you live in this world. But it's not only what you believe, but how you arrived at that belief. Is it you rationalizing truth by what you've seen or experienced in the here and the now? Or is it a spoken revelation from God and His Word that informs your belief? It's natural for us as humans on earth to trust what we see and feel. And Jesus directs the Sadducees to his revealed word. That a failure to rightly see God for who he is is a failure to trust God's revealed word as true. The Sadducees erred believing the power of God because they erred knowing the word of God. And so the second heir is really the first heir, not knowing the word of God. And Jesus concludes it with this in verse 31. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. So as we know, right, the Sadducees rejected Old Testament other than what Moses Wrote. And that's no problem for Jesus. That's no problem. Jesus opens a portion of Scripture, Moses wrote, right? Exodus 3, and gives them a little language exam. Right? At the burning bush, God said, spoke to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Some of you may be saying, well, how does that point to the resurrection? Well, it's that small present tense verb, am, Right? I am the God of Abraham. Uh, God doesn't say in past tense, I was the God of Abraham. Because when Moses wrote this, Abraham was already dead. So should not have Moses written, I was the God of Abraham? Yet God said, I am the God of Abraham. Though Abraham was dead, he is now alive. Why is Abraham alive? Because as Jesus says, verse 32, God is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. The Sadducees thought that this story of the seven brothers marrying one woman would reveal Jesus and his teaching as foolishness. 
But Jesus applies Scripture to prove, even to those with a misguided understanding of Scripture, that God's revelation, not their rationalization, is to be trusted. You know, sometimes you can be completely biblical and also completely wrong. You can take, I've done it myself, you can take your own preconceived notions, the way we see the world, and we can read that into Scripture as a means to showing how you are right. And probably all of us have seen that this past year given COVID, right? Or you can submit to the teaching of Scripture and allow God's revelation to inform you of truth, of God's character. See, the question is one of authority. Do you have authority over God's word, or does God's word have authority over you? You see, how you start will impact where you end up. How you answer that question will determine where you end. Why do you study your Bible? What is your motivation? Is it to just know more about God? Or is it to know God more? We want to know God more. Because we want to be made more and more into His image. And every time we crack open our Bible and faithful study of it, we should, that should lead us to places of humility and compassion and gentleness and meekness. The outcome of us reading our Bibles should make us look a lot more like Jesus than that of our world. In the Sadducees' air of knowing God, Jesus, he points them back to Scripture. And Jesus makes his point that we can trust that God is who he says he is, that we can trust the promises of God. The psalmist says only a fool says there is no God. It would be foolish not to believe the trustworthy revelation of God throughout Scripture. God's promises, vine family, are sure. They are eternal. When Abraham died, the covenantal promises God made with Abraham, guess what? They didn't die with Abraham. When when Jacob died, when, when Isaac died, neither too did the covenantal promises die with those patriarchs, right? Because death cannot cancel God's promises. Why? Because we have a God that's a God of the dead, not a God of the dead, but a God of the living. There is life after death. There will be a resurrection, and that is a trustworthy and true revelation from God that we can trust and hold on to in hope in this life. We conclude with this from D.L. Moody. He preached this saying, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is, all out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, the body fashioned unto his glorious body. I was born of flesh in 1837. I was born of the Spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the Spirit will live forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can trust you, that your word is sure and trustworthy, that it's timeless and eternal.
Lord, I pray that we would see the beauty and the, the, that it is worth treasuring you in our life. That it is worth it. That whatever hardship or reality we face in this earth, Lord, may we take that in a heavenly lens of the hope that we have that there is a resurrection where all things will be made new in a realm that we cannot even comprehend that's far more glorious and measurably more better. Lord, fix our eyes to that. Lord, help us to fight to worship you in all that we experience in this world. But we love you. We're thankful. We come to you with hearts of gratitude of what you accomplished on the death and in your own resurrection from the dead, making all the claims throughout Scripture true and trustworthy. Lord, we praise you this morning. It's your name we pray.